0: Well, I'm excited to be here for a variety of reasons. Uh, So, my name is Andrew Barber. I teach at the Stony Brook School, which is a boarding school uh, in Stony Brook. I'm married, I have two kids, my wife should probably be here, which probably means there's a problem with, hey, there she is, Jessica back there. So things are good. (laughs) We have two children who have made it their goal in life lately to destroy any sleep we have, it's unbelievable. We had a good thing going, but Murray and George are their names. Murray hit two, and George at six months, and they are on a one-hour cycle of keeping us awake. Uh, We're also potty training Murray, and so when he has great success at 4 a.m., we have a little toilet potty in his room. When he gets up goes to the bathroom, he decides to yell about his success to us at 4 a.m. You have to go in there and celebrate with him, put him back to bed. Well, I... I'm grateful to be here, and I, I got a Master's degree from Covenant Seminary, which is the PCA Seminary. And briefly, uh, I've always considered it good policy to be more about the gospel than a denomination, but I'd like to say very briefly what the PCA has meant to me and why I'm so excited to preach here, which is when I was growing up, I, I kind of received a version of the gospel that was very moralistic. I would say it was very cultural, and there came a point sometime about halfway through high school where I felt like I was at a breaking point. That I thought, you know, I, I believe either I'm going to have to give all of this up or I have to find a different way to do this. Somehow the gospel has to be good. There has to be good news. If not, what am I doing? And it was in that crisis moment that I, my family stumbled into a PCA church. And I'll never forget sitting in the back row of Mount Calvary, PCA, in Walnut Grove, South Carolina, while Reverend Richard Thomas talked about the pearl of great price and the beauty of the gospel and I had never heard anything like that before. Uh, and that moment and the experience I had at that church have shaped my whole life. Um, so I'm really grateful to have an opportunity to preach to you all and give back in a small way. So we are looking today at a very strange passage, Genesis 32. I preach frequently at the Stony Brook Boarding School, and because I have a lot of high schoolers, many of whom are not Christians, I frequently choose the weirdest passages to try to keep somebody's attention. Uh, So this would qualify as one of those. Also, I'm grateful that I'm speaking to mostly adults. I don't have to set my hair on fire every five minutes to keep people awake. Uh, That's great. So Genesis 32, we're looking at Jacob wrestling with God. It's a famous passage. Bono sung about it. Rembrandt painted a painting. Uh, It's one of those iconic moments in the Bible, but also one of those iconic moments nobody really knows what's going on. Uh, And Looking back at how the church has defined it in the past, there's been a lot of humorous things like people have done this crazy symbolic stuff. Well, Jacob represents innocence and daylight represents the dark and just all over the map. So hopefully today we can get some sense of what this passage is about. But I want to get into two things before we read the passage, before we go into it. Which firstly, I want to give you the context of this passage. Genesis written by Moses to Israelites who are coming out of Egypt. And they've been enslaved for a really long time. They probably have a kernel of knowledge about who God is, but they've been drawn out. They've seen this ma- magic, majestic display of God's glory. And they're like, Who is this God that we are following? And Moses begins to tell them these stories. He tells them Genesis. So, one, it's important to keep that in mind that the Israelites are wondering Are we going to make it? Who is this God? Is he invested? Is he on our side? What is he about? And the second thing that we need to know going into this is that Jacob's life has been insane up to this point. So I don't know if you know much about Jacob, but Jacob has basically made made a life defined by trickery, deceit, and just kind of overcoming through raw willpower things that have gotten in his way. So right out of the gate he's born and he is the second born to Esau. And Esau, your stereotypical kind of Very macho firstborn, and he is clearly the guy. But Jacob wants the rights of the firstborn, so he ends up blackmailing and bribing Esau into giving him the rights of the firstborn child. Later on, his father's about to die, he's going to give a blessing. He literally dresses up like Esau, fakes like he's Esau, and his father, who's clearly blind, old at this point, gives him the blessing that belongs to Esau. So to get the blessing, he takes the name that is not his to get it. Esau, of course, is furious, wants to kill him. He runs away. He ends up in this other place with relatives, gets married, has big run-ins with his father-in-law, more trickery, and runs back. So his whole life has been just one event after another where he's seemed in trouble and he's relied on himself and he's used deceit, he's used trickery, he's found his way out. Well, when we get into today's passage, Jacob, who is always trying to outrun his name, is finally meeting his comeuppance. It's finally happened. He's been running and running. And finally, everything he's done is about to catch up with him. Because Esau, that guy that he tricked and stole his rights as firstborn, he's coming back, trying to make it to the promised land. And lo and behold, Esau shows up with literally an army, his brother. he's like, this is it. And so he starts doing, he starts sending gifts like crazy. Maybe this will placate him. He starts praying. He's doing all these things. But the army keeps coming, Esau keeps coming. And then we hit this passage today. So Genesis thirty-two twenty-two through 32. The same night he, Jacob, arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. But he said, Why is it that you ask, me, ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Let's pray together over God's word. Father, we love you. We trust you. We thank you for your character, for your pursuit of us. We thank you that you have made us significant people with power to do good in this world in your name. We ask that you would bless us in this reading of your word, that it would be you who speaks and not me. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I'm from South Carolina, and one of the very odd things about me that doesn't quite make sense, I think I line up generally in the South Carolina thing. I love boiled peanuts. I went to the University of South Carolina, go Gamecocks, Carolina Panthers, uh, Charlotte Hornets. Uh, My wife and I, too. Some people don't. (laughs) I think some people have never been to South Carolina. There are a couple of things they wouldn't quite grasp about it. Very briefly, one of my best friends in college, his dad was the local boiled peanuts salesman, which meant in the town, he would literally get up every morning, boil peanuts, and just set out there and sell boiled peanuts. And my friend's great moral dilemma in his life was, should I go to college or just take up my dad's boiled peanut stand, right? And he was really serious. And so I tell that story to my students. They're like, where are you from? Um, My little hometown only got a red light after I went to college. I literally could have bicycled from the, there's a farm right across the street. Then there was the town hall, the fire department, the elementary school, and the hot dog store. And that was it. That was kind of where I grew up. So one of the things that does not make sense to me is I'm a diehard Chicago Cubs fan, Okay, diehard. Uh, The reason of this is because growing up, trying to decide on a baseball team, but South Carolina has no baseball team. And I refused, sorry for from Georgia, I refused to pull for a team from Georgia, because Georgia, I was like, pfft. And so, um, (laughs) a South Carolinian being self-righteous about Georgia is hilarious, but anyway. um, So I chose, of course, when I'm seven, I play Little League baseball, and my dad get, uh, get a Cubs shirt, and that's the beginning of the end. And my dad tries everything. He takes me to Braves games. He's showing me. He's like, your grandfather was a Cardinals fan. Look, success. Um, And I refuse. I'm like, no, I'm a Cubs fan. And he he sits me down and says, you have chosen the path of pain. (laughs) You realize this. Uh, So this year has been really fun. Obviously, they're in the hole right now in the World Series. But it's been a really fun year. But one of the most defining moments of that pain, 2003, a lot of you will know what I'm talking about. The Cubs are eight outs away from the World Series. To uh, give you perspective, I think I'm in high school at this point. Uh, and they're eight outs away from the World Series. The Cubs are up by three. We're cruising. The Wrigley fans are freaking out. Everything looks great. A Marlins player hits a, a, a fly ball down the left field line, right near the stands. So like this is the stands. The fans are right here. The ball's coming here. Moise Salou, left fielder, runs over, camps out. He's going to make the out when a man by the name of Steve Bartman reaches out and catches the ball. Okay, not a big deal, unless you're the Cubs. Because then what happens is they get a hit, there's a ground ball to short, could have been a double play, shortstop throws it into the stands, the curse is real, the Cubs fall apart, we don't make it to the World Series. My dad comes home and I am weeping on the floor and he turns off the TV and tells me to go to bed. Now, Steve Bartman, I think about that guy and I feel for him, (laughs) man, yes, feel for him big time. Steve Bartman was a name that nobody knew. Nobody knew this poor guy's name. And now, I mean, it's 13 years later, and I'm still, I know his name, Steve Bartman. I could recognize him if I saw him, right? Now, that's an extreme example of someone whose name has really, his name has stuck with him. It has meaning. It has connotation, I'm sure. For the rest of his life, when he introduces people, he probably tries to ignore his last name. Because if he says, I'm Steve Bartman, then people are, maybe people are like me. They just start sobbing. Like, what did you do to us? Um, but I think all of us, right, our names, the things we, that come in the room before us and we drag it with us wherever we go, and they have a lot of different meanings. But I think for all of us, our names, there are people out there for, for whom if you said our names, they would remember things that we don't want people to remember, right? That all of our names, we've dragged them through things we wished we had not dragged them through. There are things we wish we had not done, there are times we wish we had not lost our temper, and we do our best to hide that from our name, right? Like, I don't, I don't want you to see me when I'm frustrated with my sons, right? I don't want that attached to my name. And I think this is a, a common thing we all hit, right? There's a morning where you wake up and you're like, I, I don't like what my name means. I don't like what my name is connected with, what my name is attached to. I tell my students there are really two ways that culture tells us to deal with this, this feeling of inadequacy, that you wake up and you're like, I am, I am vulnerable, I am weak, I have done things I do not like, I don't love myself very much, I don't appreciate how I'm operating, and society, like, so you're in this circle, right, this circle of, like, shame and vulnerability, and you say, I got to get out, and culture gives us kind of two ways, which, one is the triumphant victor, right? So you look at yourself and you're like, I'm not living up, I'm not perfect, as I should be, so I'm going to make it happen. In high school, I think the, the image I had was, you're like a ship sailing, and I literally thought this about life, that you're a ship sailing, and there are all these little holes in the ship, and you've got to run from hole to hole, patching it up, right? Trying to eliminate all weakness. And you think, if only I was good-looking, in perfect shape, ate well all the time, did all these things, I would be the triumphant victor. I would have no weakness. There would be nothing for me to feel ashamed of. I could love my name because my name would be perfect. Who could dare laugh at my name if I was the triumphant victor? And Christians can do this too, right? Uh, as Christians, we can go to the word all the time and never actually come to God. Just use it as a way to become perfect. The story is told of a guy who used to wake up every morning and pray. One day he sleeps through his alarm and Satan shows up and says, Dude, you got to get up and pray. And the guy says, Satan, why are you telling me to get up and pray? And he's like, look, because if you pray every day, you'll never actually come to meet God. But if you miss today, you might actually fall on your knees, realize your weakness, and have an actual relationship with God. Right? So the triumphant victor is the first way I think we try to deal with their name problem. The second thing we do is the escapist. So the escapist says, okay, I can't, I'm not going to be awesome like that, but if you just give me some headphones, right, if you just give me food that I really like, then I'll be okay. the escapist. Uh, I think we all have tendencies in both directions. Escapist tendency for me, big time. (laughs) My wife and I uh, will notice the kids are driving you crazy, and you just sneak into the, literally have, actually, Jess probably doesn't know this. Literally, there's a giant bag of chocolate chips. She knows that. But that you just sneak in, open up, and pour a handful, and chunk it in your mouth, right? (laughs) It's like, uh, I would say that's an escapist tendency, right? And you have to hide it from the kids, because if Murray walks in, it's like, what did I have? Then we have another whole issue. And Christians can do this, too. We can do the escapist thing, where uh, it's good to contemplate, right, what's next, the afterlife. But if we find ourselves consistently saying, using Christianity just to escape and never to face what's going on here, then we've done the same thing. So we come up to this problem that our name is an issue, our name is a problem, and we decide... Wrongly, we either decide triumphant victor or escapist. If you watch ads, these are usually what they're saying. You know, Drink a Coca-Cola and you'll look like this. Right? Um, the escapist, same thing. The ads are always going for those things. But I think there is a third way to deal with our names. Right? It's not necessarily to run away from our names, but to accept that God is coming to be with us and our name. Right? He's coming to be with us. So I would say that the way to escape the triumphant victor, not okay. The escape is not okay. But that we can trust in God's promises. And that is the right way. And we can trust God's promises because God, one, he faithfully pursues us. Two, he leads us to dependence. And three, he gives us new names. So let's look at Jacob. Let's look at this story. Uh, So the first point is that God pursues us. God pursues us. So we have this moment. Jacob is ready. Esau is approaching him. It looks like this may be it. He might die here. His kids are probably asking their mothers, why is dad so upset? What's going on? What's happening? And he is at his wit's end and says, I want all you guys to go away. I'm going to stay here alone and try to meet with God. And what's going on here? Well, the last time that Jacob was in this place, It was a really glorious thing. There were, he he sat here, he was alone, and suddenly he saw, they call it Jacob's ladder, right? He sees angels coming up and down, descending from heaven, and he hears God's voice, and God gives him this promise. He says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, the land on which you lie. I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. You'll spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and the south. And in you and all your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed Behold, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So the last time he was here, he got this massive promise from God, and he's thinking, okay, we're going to try this again. I'm going to send everybody away, I'm going to sit by myself, and I'm going to, we are going to have it out right here, myself and God. But at this point, you know, Jacob has given God a lot of opportunities to bail on him. If you look at the course of his life, Jacob has given God a lot of opportunities to say, you know what, Jacob, you were the guy who was going to be the person for Israel and all that, but you're kind of a jerk, so I'm going to pick somebody else. Um, He could have done that. Jacob gave him a lot of opportunities. But he doesn't. Why? Why does God stick in? Well, the simple answer is he promised he would. Deuteronomy 7 has this amazing passage where he's talking to Israel, and God says, hey, I didn't love you because you were good-looking and handsome and strong, and you had it all together. It literally says, I love you because I love you, period. I love you because I promise that I love you, right? Isn't that the beauty of uh, the marital vows? As it comes down to that, right? Once you make those vows, it's like, I don't love you because you're this or this or this. I love you because I love you. This is the promise God has made to Jacob. And so Jacob is ready. He wants to listen now. Um, So my favorite band, we'll get to know each other a little bit here. My favorite band is U2. Uh, I used to consider myself a kind kind of cooler music person. I knew all the independent bands and all this. And U2 was always the big mainstream band that would eliminate me from like the Cool conversations at the record store, you know, uh, when I was in college and going and be like, Yeah, I love those bands too, and, and you too. And they're like, What? Come on, sell sellout. Uh, but I love you too, unashamedly. And uh, the first time I saw them in concert, that day I, I canceled everything I had going on, went with my friend. We got there absurdly early. Uh, it's a good thing we like talking to each other because we're just sitting outside for a long time. The person we're beside happens to be a massive U2 fan, and he's like, Listen, when the gates open, just follow me, and I'll put you right where you need to be. We're like, sweet. So the gates open, and sure enough, and he sprints. I mean, he takes off. So we're like flying with this guy, and he gets us right there. He puts us literally like seven feet in front of the stage, and the concert happens, and it's amazing. And we're literally so close. At one point, Bono takes a swig of water, and does this, and the water hits me in the face. And I'm like, yes. And in that moment, my friend and I had put ourselves completely in the way of U2. We had put ourselves in the... We had gone to the middle of the road and been like, we want to get hit by the U2 truck, right? And in essence, this is what Jacob is doing with God. Jacob is saying, I am putting myself in the way of the Holy Spirit. I want to get hit by the truck, right? Right? So God pursues us. That's a real active thing God does. What is our obligation? What's our responsibility? I think there are ways we can put ourselves in the way. There's only so long you can sit in the road before you get hit, right? We can put ourselves in the way. We can go here and worship together. We can come to God's word. We can begin to pray every day. We can do those things. We can have fellowship with one another. We can start trying to have those spiritual conversations with our significant others, with our friends, with our children. It's it's going to be awkward at first. The first time you go to church, you're like, what is this? But as you keep going, sitting in that middle of the road, eventually you're hit, right? I should come up with a more positive comparison than getting crushed by a vehicle. Uh, But I think think some people wrestle with like, well, I'm not feeling it, or I don't think my motives are right. Your motives will never be right. They'll never be perfect. You'll never feel amazing, right? You almost, nobody, Okay, maybe I'm saying this because I have two kids right now, but I never wake up and I'm like, yes, this day is going to be great Um, at 4.30 in the morning when my son wants to show off what he's done, right? So the point is, just go there, right? God will deal with your motives. He will deal with all those things. Meet him there. Go there. So number one, God pursues us. And because of that, we should get in the way, right? Allow him to pursue you. Get in the way. But number two, so God leads us to dependence. So this is what happens. You can picture Jacob. He's sitting there and he's like, all right, I'm here alone, doing a really spiritual thing. Last time I was here it was like glorious and there was a ladder and angels and it was really sweet. And it's almost comedic what happens here. It says, "And Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day." Right? He's like, "Hang out there." And then poof, somebody appears and is wrestling with him, fighting him. He's like, "I did this is not what I are you, What's happening?" Right? Um it's a surreal moment, and the, the scripture actually says it. It's almost, the man just appears in the scripture, too. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. He expects the latter, but he gets a fight. Now, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, so at first, Jacob's doing work. Jacob's like, okay, someone new is trying to kill me. Add it to the list. But this is what I do. I am triumphant victor. I overcome these moments. My name tries to catch up with me. I find ways out of it. I'm amazing. This is what I do. And he gets to work. And he's doing that wrestling. And he's like, I've got it. I'm going to take care of this. I don't know what's happening, but I'm going to take care of this. And then we have the twist, right? When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And suddenly, Jacob realizes that something bigger is happening here. This guy touches him and his hip goes out of joint. And he realizes, oh my goodness, this is it. I'm wrestling with the most holy God. And then he said, the man who's wrestling says, let me go for the day has broken. And Jacob, who was wrestling, is now clinging and says, I will not let you go until you bless me. I'm not, we're going ha- to have it out here. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Now, this is a weird move for God to do, putting his hip out of joint. If you think about it, Jake's about to have this big face-off with Esau. It might be physical. This would be a terrible time for him to come down with an old high school sports injury, right? Uh, And God takes his joint out. Why would he do that? I had a a great friend when you're from a small town in South Carolina. You know your best friend when you're like seven, and you stay in touch with them forever. So one one of my good friends, roomed with him in college and so forth and so on, he was in a family that, and we've processed this together, he was in a family that strove to be perfect and eliminate all weaknesses all the time. That was the number one family rule, no weaknesses. And even though you know the dad was addicted to pornography and the younger son was heavily depressed and the mother uh, was struggling with all sorts of really rampant anxieties in front of everyone, they looked great. Until, when we were in college, his dad lost his job. And suddenly all those things that had been kind of barely held in their perspective rooms just crashed together. And I'll never forget my friend met with a pastor of ours. And my friend was like, hey, can you just pray that my dad gets his job again? And the pastor said, no. I'm not going to pray for that. Because if your dad gets his job again and decides that the way that you stay healthy as a family is just by having a job, that is the wrong lesson. That is a satanic lesson right? He's like, what I am praying for is that he finds that Christ is the way out of this. Not a job. My friend was not happy with that advice, but I think it was right. What God is doing here is he's giving Jacob this limp. And you know what's interesting is it's not like this was incidental. It's not like he was going to have this anyway. It's in interacting with God that he gets this limp. Here's the deal about Christianity. Weakness and suffering is part of the deal, right? If we try to be the triumphant victor, the escapist, we're going to fail. Christianity is not about working up and becoming perfect so we can look amazing and put ourselves on Christian commercials and we'll be awesome for the world. That's not what it's about. If you read through the entire scriptures, time after time, the people who come close to God are the ones suffering, the ones revealing their weakness. Weakness is part of the deal. If the goal of Christianity is perfection, then weakness is devastating. Right? And you're going to do whatever you can to hide it. You're not going to, in this situation, right? if Christianity is perfect, I can think about another good friend of mine struggled with an addiction, if Christianity is about being perfect, you will hide that addiction at all costs. Because that's admitting you have failed as a Christian. But if Christianity is about bringing your weakness to God, you will bring that into the community of believers. You will come to people you trust, to pastor your trust, and you'll bring that out, and it'll be the most glorious, repentant, beautiful thing because God will come to meet you where you are, bringing that thing out, not trying to run off and become perfect by yourself. So if you're the triumphant victor or the escapist, this part of Christianity should unnerve you, right? Christianity is the place you bring your weaknesses. So he gives him this limp. And so we we see then that God pursues us and God leads us to dependence. And he leads us to dependence by, from now on, every time Jacob takes a step, he's going to remember that he has to rely on God. This is what God loves to do. He's like, hey, defeat that army, but get rid of half your guys. Um, Hey, uh, I'm going to bring the savior of the universe into the world with someone who's a virgin. Hey, that person is barren and Sarah, very old that's where it's going to come. He loves those scenarios where there's no way that any man could say, any man or woman could say, yeah, we did it. Because God wants to put us in a place where we depend on Him. The goal of Christianity, right? Becoming holy is not like you're saved and then you run off by yourself and you're like, yes, let's do it. Becoming holy is depending on God. That's it. Right? Depending on Him. So, God pursues us, he leads us to dependence, and lastly, he gives us new names. So they're wrestling, and God says this as they're wrestling. He says, what is your name? That's a weird question. But remember, what does Jacob's name mean? Jacob's name means deceiver, heel, person who tricks all the time, who's not faithful to his promises. That's what his name means means. And when Jacob has had to be blessed before, he's had to lie about his name. He's had to take other people's names. And so what God is asking for is a confession. He's saying, what is your name? In all its splendor, in all its horror, what is your name? And Jacob doesn't lie this time. He says, my name is Jacob. I own all that. That's my name, Jacob. It says, then he said, you know what? Your name is no longer Jacob. Your name is Israel, which means let El rule. Let God rule. Now, you can picture Moses telling the story to the Israelites, and they've been following Jacob, and they're like, this Jacob guy's kind of a loser. And here's the moment they've renamed him Israel. And they're like, wait, what, that guy? Our nation's named after that guy? Are you kidding? Abraham was pretty cool, but this guy... I don't know about that, if we should name after him. Like, he's not the best mascot, right? But this is the guy that God has chosen, right? In all his weakness, in all his mistakes, and all his flaws, let God rule. Here's the application for us, is that Christ on the cross, what he does is he takes your name and my name and all the rubbish stuff that it means... He takes all the anger outbursts we've had. He takes all the anxiety that we've had. He takes all the gossip we have done. He takes all the horrible things we've done in our lives. He takes all those names and dies on the cross for those names so that you and I can have new names. So that when God looks at us, he doesn't see... I'm just using hypothetical names. This is you. I'm sorry. He doesn't see, like, Drew the abuser or Grace the addict, what he sees... Is Drew, the son of God. Grace, the daughter of God. My child. This is my child with whom I am well pleased. Period. Game over. That's your name. So application. I mean, what do we do with that? Goodness. What do we do with that? I think what that means is the call to Christianity. Uh, so if you took a picture of two people who had just gotten married they would be just as married as a picture of them 30 years later still married. Yes? They are just as married. But the ideal is over here, day one, you've just taken the picture, there are so many ways in which they are not working together. They are not on the same page. They've got a lot to work through. And hopefully over here in year 30, things are going really well together. Just as married, but over here they have become one flesh in lots of different Ways, this is what Christianity does, right? It gives you that new name and asks us to grow up into it, It gives us the resource to do it, which is what—depending on God—to grow into that new name. So we put ourselves in the way of God, we let Him hit us like a truck, and we we allow it to grow us into those new names. So then, those moments when you are having that anger towards your kid, or you're you are just. Besides yourself with your spouse or your significant other or whatever, it's not you, the angry person, it's you, the righteous one, the chosen people of God. That's what you are. And we can act out of that. So at the end, he gives him this name, and Jacob says, uh, I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And the sun rose upon him as he passed Penwell, limping because of his hip. And Jacob makes it to the promised land. And he makes it with a new name and a new limp. Right? Isn't that a picture of the Christian life? I think all of us are limping in so many ways. But we're also limping with a new name. And maybe that limp is there to remind us that we need to depend on the God who gives us that new name. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We know that meeting with you is dangerous stuff. It can be dangerous. I look at the survey of the scriptures, and the people who are closest to you seem to do a lot of suffering. They seem to feel a lot of pain. Father, I think the truth is that they have felt the reality of their situation, that apart from you, there is nothing, that you are the only way. Father, I imagine there are a lot of people here, who are limping for various reasons. God, I ask that they would not take that limp and say, I'm going to go deal with this myself. I'm going to make a tourniquet and keep the bleeding down so that no one would see it. I ask that they would bring that limp before you, that they would let that limp drive them to you, drive them to your people, that they would more fully understand their new name in you. Father, we know that Satan hates that, hates a group of Christians who know who they are before you. Help this church, these people, to be people who know who they are before you, the righteous ones, the chosen ones, the people of God. In Jesus' name, amen.